Chapters thirty seven and thirty eight of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. and Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter thirty seven The Dawn of a Brighter Day. We liked Myrtle Grove so well that we made it our home for three years. Its quiet beauty seemed so soothing and restful after the terrible grandeur of Enderby Castle and the mournful desolation of Weirdwaste. I had a little school of poor children, and a small number of aged and invalid cottagers, whose necessities gave me interest and occupation. My father was now a recluse and a student, passing most of his time in the small library among his favorite authors, or, if the weather was very fine, sitting in his leather chair under one of the trees in the thickly shaded grounds at the back of the house, with a book in his hand. My brother came every Christmas and every midsummer to spend his vacation with us. As I mentioned before, he knew nothing of my short, disastrous marriage, and was to know nothing of it. His talk, when he was at home, was full of Angus Anglesia, his one dear friend. When he was praising this hypocrite, I was forced to make some excuse to get out of the room, or to keep a painful silence in it, for I could not contradict him, or expose Anglesia's villainy to me, without betraying facts that it was desirable should be kept from him. Even my father, who knew now every circumstance attending my imprudent marriage, knew nothing of Anglesia's insulting proposal to me. Pride, delicacy, and consideration for that dear father's feelings prevented me from telling him. Yet I made him understand that under my peculiar circumstances I did not want any visitors, especially gentlemen visitors, at Myrtle Grove, of course always excepting the vicar, the doctor, the lawyer, and my dear brother, who could scarcely indeed be called a visitor. In this manner, without having to mention Anglesia's name, I kept my brother's dear friend from coming to Myrtle Grove. Before the commencement of every vacation, undaunted by previous refusals, Glennon would write from his college and ask leave to bring his friend home with him. My father would then bring the letter to me and ask my opinion. I would always tell him, what was the truth, that my soul shrank from visitors and he would write something to the same effect in his reply to Glennon. My brother took this very hard, and on his arrival at home would always complain that it was, in schoolboy slang, a jolly shame, he could not have Anglesia to spend the holidays with him, as he had always been accustomed to do. He said that he did not know what had come over Friday. She had been very fond of Anglesia when they were at Brighton together. So fond of him that he, Glennon, had hoped Anglesia might one day be his brother-in-law, as he was now his brother in heart. I said nothing in self-defense at all, but left it to my father to explain, what he assumed to be the truth, that I had no especial objection to Anglesia, but that the state of my health unfitted me to entertain company. This generally satisfied him, at least for the time being. At length, when little more than three years had passed, my father began to grow weary of our long seclusion from the world, and proposed that we should make another tour of the continent, avoiding as much as possible the crowded resorts of tourists, and betaking ourselves to quieter scenes. I consented to this, as I did to every plan proposed by my father. I made but one condition. The Easter holidays were approaching, and my brother was expected to come to Myrtle Grove, to spend the time with us as usual. I therefore proposed to my father that Glennon should now invite his friend to accompany him to Myrtle Grove, while I myself should go for a week and take lodgings at the dairyman's cottage in Kent where my child was at nurse. You may wonder why I should have done this, knowing the character of Anglesia as I did. 
I have sometimes wondered at the same act. But I think it was from affection for Glennon I acted. I knew how he longed to have Anglesia with him at Myrtle Grove. I wished to gratify that longing. I knew that nothing I could do could either cement or sever the bonds of that strong friendship. I knew also that Anglesia never had and never would show his cloven foot to Glennon, or that even if he should do so, Glennon would never tolerate it. He would fly from it. I felt instinctively that Anglesia could never harm my brother. More than willingly, gladly, my father agreed to my plan. He wanted to gratify his son. So I wrote immediately to see if I could obtain lodgings, for change of air, at the dairy farm. In good time came a favorable answer. Then my father wrote to Glennon, authorizing him to invite his friend to spend the Easter holidays with him at Myrtle Grove. I did not wait for the arrival of the visitor, but on the Wednesday before Easter I set out alone for Kent, meaning to engage some country girl in the neighborhood of the dairy to wait on me while in lodgings. I reached the dairy about four o'clock on that Wednesday afternoon and found my son, now a fine boy over three years old, in the rosiest health and most boisterous spirits. He sprang into his auntie's arms and covered her with caresses before he began to search her pockets and her handbag for the sweetmeats and toys she was accustomed to bring him. A dainty tea-table was waiting for me in a charming cottage parlor. So Mary Chester coaxed my nephew from his auntie's arms and showed me into a clean, neat, fresh bedroom, snow-white as all delectable bedrooms were in the days before the decoration craze spread over the land. There I laid off my bonnet and washed off the railroad dust. And then I returned to the parlor, where my nephew was allowed to join me at the tea-table, sitting up in a high armchair. That night Mary Chester waited on me as a lady's maid, but the next day I procured the country girl I had been thinking of. I spent a really happy week at the dairy with my child and his foster-brother. These two children were so fond of each other that it was a comfort and delight to me to think of them together. Mary Chester had no other children, and she was entirely devoted to them. John Chester, her husband, was a fine, wholesome, honest young man, bearing an excellent character in the neighborhood. We all went to the parish house together on Easter Sunday, leaving the two baby boys at home in charge of Mary Chester's grandmother, who was too infirm to sit through the long church service, but who was quite equal to the care of two children for a few hours. As Easter week drew to a close, I began to think of returning to Myrtle Grove, but I did not leave the dairy until I received a letter from my father, informing me that the visitors had departed. Then I loaded my little son, his foster-brother, and his attendants with presents suited to the conditions of each. I returned heartfelt thanks to Mary Chester for her excellent care of my nephew, and paid her six months in advance. Finally, on the Thursday after Easter, I bade them all good-bye, and set out to return to Myrtle Grove. I found my father in excellent health, but impatient to start on our journey. I hurried my preparations, and two days after we left England for Germany, where it was my fate first to meet you, Abelforce, who made all the happiness of my life. CHAPTER Thirty Eight, NEW LIFE We avoided the highways and public resorts of travel, the grand railway lines, the great cities, the famous spas, the big hotels, and we sought out the byways, unfrequented hamlets and villages on mountain heights or in forest depths, as yet undiscovered by the eyes, unprofaned by the feet of speculators. We had seen enough of the splendor and magnificence of Europe. We wished to see some of its real working life. Yes, we wished to lose ourselves and find repose in obscurity. 
yet where can one go and avoid fate? Or where, let me ask you, Abel, can we travel and not meet an American tourist? You remember the day and the place of our first meeting. It was on a glorious afternoon in July, when the sun was sinking in the west and kindling all the horizon into a conflagration. We were in a little chalet at the foot of the mountain. We had come out to view the magnificence of the sunset. The cowherd was penning his cattle, the shepherd was folding his sheep. Coming down the mountain path, we saw a solitary tourist, knapsack on back and alpenstock in hand. That was my first sight of you, Abel, a tall, athletic, black-bearded man, whom we all first took for a Tyrolesian. You came up to the door of the chalet, raised your hat to us, and asked the cottagers if you could have a night's lodging. Do you remember, Abel? Of course, you could be accommodated, roughly. We were all roughing it for the time being. So our acquaintance began. That night, you introduced yourself to us by name and nationality, Abel Force of Maryland, United States. And when my father, in return, named himself and me, your face brightened. You told him that on leaving America you had brought letters of introduction, among which was one from your late minister to St. James, addressed to the Earl of Enderby. These letters were all with your luggage at your hotel in Bern, where you had left them to come on this pedestrian excursion to the mountain. You added that you had missed Lord Enderby in England and learned that he was traveling on the continent, that you deemed yourself strangely fortunate in having thus met him, and would present your credentials in the form of the ex-minister's letter as soon as we should reach Bern. The next day we all returned to Bern in company, you at my father's invitation, taking a seat in our carriage. At the Bernerhof Hotel we stopped but one night. There you found and presented your letter, to prove that you were no impostor, you said. You joined our company, and traveled where we traveled, and stopped where we stopped. Why should I repeat this to you? You know it already. Only because it is a visible link in the chain of our destiny. That long summer, Abel, we spent together. That long summer, every day of which drew our hearts nearer and nearer. Even my father, who was ever most reserved to all but oldest friends and nearest kin, came to love you like a son. I, feeling then for the first time all the bitter significance of my own antecedents, resisted the sweet influence that was flowing into my soul, yet resisted it in vain. You know how silently our love grew during those delightful weeks and months we lived and traveled together. I knew then, though we might never marry in this world, even as I know now, though this confession may part us for this earth, that we are mates for all eternity. There came a day at last when we were all in the ancient city of Granada, that you went to my father and asked his consent to win me for your wife. He told you that he would have a talk with me first, and then give you an answer. My father came to me and told me all that had passed between himself and you, and of your proposal for my hand, and he asked me how I felt disposed toward Mr. Force. Oh, the bittersweet of that moment! I told my father I felt so well disposed toward you, that but for my past calamity and its living evidence I should accept your hand. Oh, Abel, my answer did not express the hundredth part of the love, the joy, and the sorrow that strove in my heart at the time. But I had to control myself and speak quietly, almost indifferently, in the presence of my father. He replied by assuring me that he should approve my marriage with Mr. Force, that as for my calamity it was no crime, no fault of mine, but the result of circumstances, that I was so perfectly and unquestionably innocent, 
that I might tell the whole story to Mr. Force, without losing a degree of his love and esteem. At that I became very much alarmed. I declared to my father that I should die on the spot if ever my suitor should be told the story of my humiliation, for under such circumstances I could not look him in the face and live. My father attempted to argue with me, to call me morbid, my thoughts and feelings extravagant, exaggerated, but the violence of my agitation bore him down and silenced him at last. "'What am I to say to force?' he inquired. "'Tell him anything you like, except the story of my fall, or that I can accept his suit.' "'You refuse him, then?' "'I must.' My father left me. I kept my room the whole of that day. On the next day I went down to the sitting-room we three occupied in common. I certainly did not expect to find you there, Abel Force, yet there you were, looking a little graver than usual, but otherwise behaving as if nothing unusual had been said or done. You bade me good morning, handed me a chair, and inquired after my health. Well, though to my surprise I found you in our sitting-room that morning, I certainly expected you to leave our party on the first opportunity, but you did not. You remained with us and travelled with us as before. I shrank from speaking to my father on the subject, yet at length I summoned courage to ask him if he had given my answer to you. He replied that he had, and that you had said you could wait and hope. We spent the autumn together, as we had spent the summer. Yet, Abel, we were not happy, and as the time for our return to England and your return to America approached, and we were to separate to meet no more in this world, we both grew more and more miserable. As for me, my heart seemed wasting to death. One day, in November, my father came to me and said, "'Elfrida, do you consider me a man of honor or not?' "'My dear father, what a question!' was all that I could answer. "'But tell me, do you consider me a man of honor, yes or no?' "'Yes, my dear father, yes, a man of the most perfect and most unquestionable honor.' "'Good. Then perhaps you will believe me and act upon my words.' Elfrida, Mr. Force has this morning begged me to speak for him again. Again he offers you his hand. Well, my dear father? Well, Elfrida, he loves you, and you know it. You love him, and he knows it. You are both dying for each other, and I know that. Well, my dear father, I said again. Have pity on him and on yourself, and accept his suit. But my past, my past, which I can never tell him. Never. I could die first. Elfrida, do you believe your father to be a man of honor? he inquired for the third time. Dear sir, how can you ask me? I have said, a man of indubitable honor, I replied. Very well, then, on the truth of a man, on the honor of a peer, on the faith of a Christian, I swear to you, Elfrida, that you may marry force without telling him one word of your past trouble, he said to me, so solemnly that I could not question him. I could only receive his words on the high and sacred ground on which he had spoken them. Oh, Abel, was I wrong? I am now going to send force to see you, he repeated, as he left the room. Two minutes after that you came to me, and before you left my side I was your promised wife. Oh, Abel, was I wrong? Was my father misled by his love for his child? Was I deceived by my love for you? Oh, Abel, was I wrong? I knew my father's strict punctilious sense of honor. I had seen many instances of it. He had been a wealthier man had he been a less fastidiously honorable one. How could I believe that he would sanction a dishonorable concealment of my story, even to secure my own happiness? I could not believe this of my father, and yet I doubted. I doubted. 
and this concealment never did secure my happiness, but has burdened and darkened and sickened my soul for twenty years. You remember it was arranged that we should be married at Myrtle Grove. We all went to London together. You took apartments at Langham's. We went down to Myrtle Grove, where you were to meet us a fortnight later for the wedding. And what did I do at Myrtle Grove? Prepare for my wedding? No, I passed but one day there, and then I hurried down into Kent and to the dairy farm to see my boy, whom I had not seen for many months. I carried loads of toys, pets, sweetmeats, presents of all sorts. Ah, as if gifts could compensate a child for family recognition, for mother's love. I found the boy in high health, happy in his surroundings, in his foster parents' affections, and in his foster brother's companionship. I spent nearly the whole fortnight preceding my marriage with my child in Kent. Two days before the one appointed for the wedding, I took leave of my boy, half heartbroken at the forced separation, yet comforted with the knowledge that he at least was well and happy, and that he would be faithfully nursed by Mary Chester, and carefully looked after by my father, who had promised to adopt and educate him, and to bring him to see me at intervals. I returned to Myrtle Grove, having made no preparations for our marriage, which you know was a strictly private one at the parish church, with only my father to give me away, and my brother and the parish clerk for witnesses. After the wedding, you remember, we took leave of my dear father, who promised to visit us the ensuing spring, but who never kept his promise, because he died suddenly of heart disease during that winter. End of chapter 38